Well, good evening. It is uh, good to be worshiping with you all. It does look weird um, up here. Uh, as you heard, as Mark uh, talked about in the introduction, we are starting our first of five weeks uh, looking at the five solas of the Reformation. Uh, for those of you who do not know, um, history nerds like us uh, chose to do this series in this month because uh, traditionally October 31st of 1517 um, is acknowledged as the date of Martin Luther nailing uh, the 95 theses on the door of Wittenberg Castle uh, and thus sparking uh, the Protestant Reformation. Uh, so for those of you that do quick math in your heads, that's 500 years ago. So this is the 500th year of what we celebrate as the Protestant Reformation. And to be honest, um, first I want to make sure that you understand that I am wholeheartedly Protestant. Uh, those of you that have come to my house and tried to get on uh, the internet know that five solas is actually my password uh, to get on the internet. Uh, so know that I am wholeheartedly Protestant, but uh, at the same time, uh, there is something about uh, the thought of 500 years ago, uh, the splintering and the fracturing of the church uh, that leaves me with a little bittersweet uh, feeling in my heart. If you think back uh, 500, 550 years ago, there was no such thing as the Roman Catholic Church. There was no such thing as Presbyterians. There was no such thing as Anglicans or Baptists or whatever non-denominationalist you are. There was none of those things. There was the Church of the Living God. And so... Um, 1517 really marks um, a sanctifying time in the church, um, and as sanctification often can be, uh, it was painful. So uh, we will celebrate the Reformation. It, it was a necessary thing for God's church, um, but I must confess to you right uh, up front that it does make me a little bit sad. Um, if you have not studied this time, I really encourage you. It's, it's fascinating to go back and to look at what all was going on in the church, uh, in our family tree right around the 15th and 16th uh, century. Things uh, politically, socioeconomically, um, it, it was just a wild and crazy time. Um, and, and what I think sometimes we can do is flatten all that down and we say, okay, October 31st, 1517, Protestant Reformation started. Um, really, that's not that's not true. Um, it, it would be like saying um, Independence Day, July 4th, uh, that's when America was independent. And it was, it's not exactly true, right? Uh, you have July 2nd, uh, which America actually declared independence. And then most of the signers of the Declaration of Independence didn't actually sign it until over a month later. Um, and so you have sort of this window of things happening. But then you have a lot of things leading up to American independence. It's the same way with the Protestant Revolution. Reformation. Uh, we celebrate October 31st, 1517, um, but there was a ton going on before um, and a ton that would go on after that you have to kind of come and look at and see uh, to really understand what was going on in the Protestant Reformation. We say that Luther started it, but really there were men that had laid the groundwork before Martin Luther. And so uh, before we get into the first sola, sola scriptura, I do want us to try to get a little bit of historical background behind what was going on, what led up uh, to the Reformation. 
uh, in, in the 1100s. Uh, that's 400 years before the Protestant Reformation is celebrated. Uh, a man named Peter Waldo. Um, Peter Waldo began to teach and recognize and see that there were uh, terrible abuses in the clergy. Um, God's priests and God's bishops were very immoral. And so Peter Waldo began to write against those things. He also began to write and to speak out against the doctrine of purgatory uh, that had surfaced. So it wasn't like just after the Reformation, now we realize purgatory is not uh, biblical. But Peter Waldo in the 1100s was speaking out against this. And then he also spoke out against transubstantiation. Uh, Transubstantiation is the teaching that the priest uh, takes the elements and um, in saying the magic words um, turns the bread and wine into literally the body and blood of Christ and so when he is ingesting the elements they are actually ingesting uh, Jesus Christ himself and Peter Waldo spoke out against that. Now he didn't cause a big enough stir in the 1100s for much to happen but after he died the church came back and deemed him a heretic. And so Peter Waldo is called a heretic of the church and anybody who followed Peter Waldo uh, would be persecuted by the church. Fast forward uh, 200 years, uh, the 1300s, which is 200 years before the Protestant Reformation, you have a man named John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe. He is uh, most famously known for giving us the first English Bible. Um, He too looked at the papacy and said that there is no scriptural justification that we would have a pope. So you can imagine that didn't win him many friends in the Catholic Church. Um, And then he also spoke out against the greed of the priesthood. So 200 years after Waldo, you've got Wycliffe basically pointing out the same things that Waldo had. And again, didn't cause much of a stir. Uh, There were things going on technologically during Martin Luther's time that allowed the Reformation to take off that hadn't yet uh, taken place in the 1300s. And so, um, again, John John Wycliffe did not go, um, didn't cause much of a stir, but 30 years after John Wycliffe dies, the church deems him a heretic. They dig up his bones, they burn his bones, and they scatter his ashes in the river to teach people that would follow John Wycliffe that this is not the way that you should go about doing things. So again, that's 200 years before the Reformation. Come forward uh, 100 years, just 100 years before the Reformation, a man named John Huss. Um, say if, uh, think if this sounds familiar or not. John Huss speaks up against the ethical abuses of the church. Um, John Huss appeals to Jesus Christ and to the Holy Scriptures as authoritative over and above the Pope's. Yes, I said popes. <laughs> there were multiple popes um, at the time arguing and battling um, for the, the papacy, for the ultimate authority in the church. And John Huss speaks up against this. And unlike Waldo and unlike Wycliffe, who were deemed heretics after death, conveniently, um, they actually condemned John Huss, a heretic, while he was still alive and burned him at the stake for the things that he was teaching. So the church 
burned one of its own uh, for standing up and for going against the church. And so um, whenever we spend the next few weeks going through uh, these five solas and going through these doctrines, I want you to kind of understand that um, there are many men and many women who have actually died um, believing and fighting for these things um, that we believe in and that we hold so dear. So last week we spent a lot of time talking about keeping uh, the peace part of the church. Uh, The Protestant reformers uh, spent most of their time struggling for the purity of the church. Uh, They wanted the peace of the church, uh, but the church as a whole did not want peace. And so the reformers didn't want a false peace. They wanted true peace and true unity in Christ. And so as a result, uh, you have the Protestant uh, Reformation taking place. So uh, that's sort of setting the background um, for the Reformation. One of the mottos of the Reformation was um, post tenebras lux. Post tenebras lux, which is after darkness, light. After darkness light. So in the church, uh, you had great darkness and great evil and great wickedness. And the men like Waldo and Wycliffe and Huss were poking holes in the darkness. Um, And then you get to Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and they shatter the night. And that's what we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks. Um, You heard uh, sort of some underlying things. Uh, The Reformation was theological, um, but it was also deeply uh, deeply moral and deeply pastoral. Uh, So you might think, oh, well, we're going to talk a bunch of theology. That wasn't primarily the reason for the Reformation. Yes, it was theological, um, but there were moral pastoral concerns going on uh, that, that really disturbed Martin Luther. Just listen to a few of them. Um, then, uh, 500 years ago, priests and popes were sworn to celibacy. They still are. Um, and yet, then they had mistresses and illegitimate children fighting over land. And so you fast forward 500 years, because of the Protestant Reformation, your ministers get to be married. And we get to enjoy all the privileges that go along with marriage inside the bounds of marriage. 500 years ago, couldn't happen. Back then, um, there was a sacrament of holy orders. So the pastors, the priests, the bishops, the deacons, they would take holy orders. And by taking holy orders, they were serving God and they were meriting grace. And so if you did uh, the rite of holy orders, you were actually getting grace. Whereas if you were working as a farmer, you, you weren't getting grace for that. That was a, a secular job. So there was a, a very big sacred and secular divide um, between the uh, church leaders and the laity. But you fast forward 500 years, um, because of what happened at the Reformation, they restored the dignity of work. And so, yes, uh, to the degree that ministers and deacons and priests are being faithful in their service to the Lord, um, that is a thing that God approves of. That is a blessed thing. Um, But also, the stay-at-home mom is now engaged in a vocation that honors the Lord. So you don't have this big divide between, oh, those are the really holy people and those are kind of the dirty people. No, because of the Protestant Reformation, we can look at the marketing guy and the teacher and the counselor and the generic business guy and the stay-at-home mom and the apartment leaser and say, there is honor and there is nobility in that work and God is pleased with that. 500 years ago, you wouldn't have been able to take comfort in that. 
Um, the other thing, one of the other things is only priests could take the Lord's Supper. Um, so God's people um, could not take the Lord's Supper. In about 40 minutes, uh, you all are going to get to come forward and you're going to take the Lord's Supper together. You've sang congregational songs. You've prayed as a congregation. 500 years ago, that would not have happened. That would not have happened without the Protestant Reformation. So again, this isn't just a theological thing. This is a doxological thing. This is a a thing that changes our lives, and it's as a result of what happened 500 years ago. Um, Again, I know this this is a lot of kind of historical nerd-out information, but it's actually important. Um, 500 years ago, church services were in Latin. Uh, no one spoke Latin, <laughs> but the church service was in Latin. The Bible was in Latin. And so then you fast forward 500 years to where we are now, and you have a little worship order in your hand on an 11 by 17 piece of paper that we printed in the other room with English and Spanish on it, all because of the Protestant Reformation. You have access, if you have a phone or an iPad right there with you, you have access to dozens and dozens of different English translations. Whereas 500 years ago, all you have is a Latin Bible. You, you, actually, you don't even have a Latin Bible. Only the church has the Latin Bibles. So you have no clue what's going on. But today, as of 2016, the full Bible has been translated into 636 different languages. The New Testament has been translated into 1,442 different languages. Portions of the Bible have been translated into 3,223 different languages. All because of what happened 500 years ago in the Protestant Reformation. Isn't that fascinating? It's fascinating to me. Last thing we'll kind of talk about between the then and now, um, the best you could have hoped for, those of you sitting, uh, for, well, there wouldn't have been pews, um, so those of you standing or kneeling or leaning against the wall, the best you could have hoped for was purgatory. You would spend thousands upon thousands of years in purgatory burning off the remnants of your sin before you could then um, get into heaven. What you would hope would happen um, is that after you died, somebody had enough money um, and they were in your family that they would buy an indulgence on your behalf. So the Catholic Church was teaching um, that the saints um, had merited enough grace on their own to get them into heaven, um, but they were so good they merited enough grace that they had sort of an, a, sort of leftovers. Uh, they had grace in a savings account, and so it was called the treasury of merit. And only the Pope had access to this treasury of merit. And conveniently enough, they were trying to build um, St. Peter's Basilica, and so the Pope was willing to give the people access to the treasury of merit if they would buy an indulgence. And so you had guys like John Tetzel going around saying, um, every time a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And so you had peasants who, again, couldn't read their Bibles, were being oppressed by greedy leadership, Buying indulgences instead of food. 
because they thought eternal life and eternal life is more important than the food that they could eat. And so Martin Luther sees this and it, it just wrecks him. And so he stands up again. At the time, Martin Luther's not even against indulgences. He's just against the improper use of indulgences. And so imagine uh, that is the best that you could hope for is um, someone living after you buying an indulgence to possibly get you out of heaven or to get you out of purgatory. That's where your hope was. That was the hope that the Roman Catholic Church had. Actually, they weren't even the Roman Catholic Church yet. But today, fast forward 550 years, and you are about uh, to be reminded of things that you already believe, that God's salvation is by His grace alone, through faith alone, and for His glory alone, and it's fully based on the merits of Christ alone. You would not have had that 500 years ago. So we come to the Protestant Reformation, and yes, it's bittersweet, but it was necessary. It was an answer to Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17. He prayed that God's people would be sanctified in truth, and in His Word, and His Word is truth. And so at the time of the Reformation, that's where you see men flying. They're flying back to God's Word, ad fontes, back to the source. What has God said about this? And then you see the split. So that's actually, again, a lot of background um, for uh, what we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks. Um, but that should give you a little bit of a feeling why it's so important um, that we have these things and, and, and be thankful for it. Um, I know we spend a lot of time arguing over a bunch of different things in our world and in our country. Uh, right now everyone's arguing whether or not you should kneel before some song before a football game. Um, and you have one side that's freaking out, um, saying that's what you should do. Um, that's a great way to protest. And you've got another side that said men and women died. Um, and, and you should never do that. Well, if you spend more time worried about things like that than you do thinking that men and women have died so that you could have Bibles in your hand so that you could gather together in worship, so that you could pray and have access to God without some intermediary, then your priorities are a little skewed. Okay? So let's, let's spend the next few weeks together repenting and coming back to God's Word together and not getting distracted by some of those other things. Okay, long intro. If you're willing and able, please stand. Um, we will be in John 17. John 17 will be... Uh, this was all strategic. We're about halfway through the sermon, so I wanted you to stand. That way you wouldn't fall asleep. Um, but we will be in John 17. And we're just going to read verses 6 through 19 um, for the sakes of your knees and your back. Um, and that will serve as sort of the foundational text for us today. Hear God's Word from John 17, verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. 
Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May God bless the reading and the hearing and the preaching of his word. And may he grant us all the grace to trust and obey it. And all the church said, Amen. Amen. Please be seated. All right, so this morning, or this evening, Almost, almost made it through a whole service. This evening, we are going to be looking um, at the doctrine of sola scriptura. That means the scriptures alone. This doctrine teaches that the Old and New Testaments are the only infallible rule of faith and practice. Now, this means that although we believe uh, that the Bible gives secondary authorities which are backed by the authorities of the Scriptures, the Bible can never be wrong. And therefore, the Bible is what we should appeal to when there are matters of dispute. The Bible is what we submit ourselves to. Now, there is a lot uh, to this teaching, um, and we do not have time to go through a fully-orbed doctrine of Scripture. Uh, So we're just going to look at a few things that undergird the doctrine of sola scriptura. The first thing we're going to look at um, is that the Scriptures are inspired. The Scriptures are inspired. They are God-breathed. They are expired from God. Um, He is their source. And so the Scriptures are authoritative. Because they are inspired, because they are backed by God Himself, they are authoritative. And then finally, we're going to look at uh, that the Scriptures are sufficient. Um, Because God has chosen these words to give to us, it is these words that we need, and these words are enough for us. Now, before we look um, at this uh, a lot more closely, I do want us to keep a few things um, in mind. The doctrine of sola scriptura, sola gratia, soli fide, any doctrine uh, that you ever study is not meant to be an end in and of itself. Anything that you learn, anything that you know, anything that you study is not meant to be an end in and of itself. Remember, the Reformation um, was not only a theological issue that was arising. These issues that were studied were intensely moral, intensely practical, and intensely uh, pastoral. So a nice little phrase that you can use and keep in the back of your mind, orthodoxy should always lead to orthopraxy. Right doctrine should always lead to right practice or to right living. 
So this, uh, some of you saw some Latin on uh, the worship order and the little handout back there and you're like, oh, this is going to be too boring and intellectual. I'm just going to tune myself out. I want to encourage you, don't tune out. These topics that we're covering, these Christian truths that we hold so tight to our chest should delve deep inside of you and they should drive your Christian faith. C.S. Lewis said, I tend to find the doctrinal books are often more helpful in devotion than devotional books. And I rather suspect that the same experience may await many others. I believe that many who find that nothing happens when they sit down or kneel down to a book of devotion would find that the heart sings unbidden while they are working their way through a tough bit of theology with a pipe in their teeth and a pencil in their hand. Christ prayed that you would be sanctified in truth, that you would be made more like Him in truth by His Word. So don't run from hard truths. Embrace them, study them, let them seep into you so that you can be conformed into the image of Jesus. Another thing that uh, we might be tempted to do in this series, um, especially when studying the Reformation um, as Protestants, is that we might be tempted to look down our nose at Rome and shake our finger at Rome and ignore our own issues. So throughout this series, we're not going to just be looking at Rome's issues and Rome's denial of these things that we're going to be studying, but we are going to look at how we have jerked the wheel into the other ditch and how Protestants essentially function like they did back in Rome so that we can hopefully repent together. Martin Luther's first of the 95 Thesis says that when our Lord Jesus Christ said, Repent, He willed that the entire life of believers be one of repentance. So yes, Rome was and is wrong, but we have our own issues that we need to deal with. So we're going to try to deal with both of those issues by running back to God's Word together. Okay, so first truth we're going to look at is that the Holy Scriptures are inspired by God Himself. We don't do this very often, but what I'm going to ask you to do is turn in your Bibles, turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1 and keep your finger there. First Peter, one of the benefits of having a paper Bible, you get to keep your finger in a spot. First uh, Peter chapter one, and then I want you to hold that spot and flip and, and look at Second Timothy three. First Peter one and Second Timothy three. <clears throat> I should actually turn there too. All right, so 2 Timothy 3.16. Not 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Now flip to 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll look at verse 16 through 21. 
not First Peter, Second Peter. 16 through 21. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses to His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So in these two verses, in uh, two sections, you see Paul and Peter upholding the principle of divine inspiration of the Holy Scriptures. In Timothy, Paul says that the Scriptures are theopneustos. They are God-breathed. He's affirming Jesus' prayer in John 17. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. This scripture, this Bible that you're holding, these are the words of God Himself. And because they're the words of God, they are without error. You and I can pledge to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. But... We need God to help us. God doesn't need such help. What He says is true because not only does He not lie, He cannot lie. And so if we have His words, we can trust that there is no error in what He said. Peter affirms this as well. He was with Jesus on the mountain when he was transfigured with Moses and Elijah. Peter personally heard God's voice. And yet, Peter says there is something even more sure than his own experience. There's the Word of God. So if Peter ever doubts, or even if he doesn't doubt his own experience... He has God's Word to come to for what is good and for what is right and what is true to judge even his own experience by. Peter's experience isn't the ultimate lens through which he views reality. Rather, he trusts that the Scriptures should be the lens through which he views reality because they're God's words. God's Word is his corrective to even his own experience. This is denied by Rome, and it's denied by most modern evangelicals. Now, to be fair, Rome and Protestants would affirm that the Bible is God's Word. It is inspired by God. They are the very words of God. But they would only affirm this theologically, not practically. You can't have a divide between the two. Rome believes in papal infallibility. The Pope, when speaking ex cathedra from his chair, when speaking about matters of morality, cannot err. 
We deny that. And Protestants look at that and they say, that's silly. But then what do Protestants do? They jerk the wheel into the other side of the ditch and as a result end up believing in individual infallibility. So no person can argue or can tell me how to interpret the Bible. And so while in Rome you have one Pope who is infallible, in Protestantism, if you're not careful, you end up with 5,000 Popes in one church who believe that their interpretation is infallible. And so you hear things like, well, that's just your interpretation. Oh, it's just my interpretation. And in default, what you're denying is the inspiration of God's Word as the only rule for faith and life. And so now you have two completely supposed polar opposites doing the same thing in practice and saying that a person's interpretation can be infallible. The other thing that Rome says um, about this is that the Bible is God's Word and the books that are in the Bible are there because the church gave them the authority to be there. We deny that. And Protestants look at that and say, well, that's silly. We would never do something like that. But then in the Protestant world, what do we do? We say that certain scriptures have authority over our life, but that others don't. And then we say, well, the red letters are more important than the black letters. Or the New Testament is more important than the Old Testament. So what we're, in do, what we're doing in practice is we think that we are giving authority to certain parts of God's Word and neglecting other parts of God's Word. And so in practice, if we're not careful, Protestants can do the exact same thing as Roman Catholics do, and that is pretend as if we have the authority to give certain scriptures certain power that we don't have. We deny both of these errors. The scriptures are God's Word, and they have His authority behind them, not our authority, not the church's authority. Rome is wrong. Popes and councils and churches and confessions can err, and they have erred. But God's Word doesn't, and God's Word can't err. We are wrong. God's word is without error. We are full of error. So we don't get to determine which part of God's word is more true or more authoritative than another because all scripture is God-breathed and incapable of error. If there appears to be a conflict or a contradiction, it's not God's word that has the problem. We have the problem. And we must repent because the Bible is God's very word. And because it's God's word, it also has his weight and his authority behind it. So because the scriptures are inspired and infallible, that brings us to our second point. God's word is our ultimate authority. This is the heart of sola scriptura, but it's a truth that Roman and Protestant churches get wrong. Rome teaches that tradition and Scripture have equal authority. And so if tradition and Scripture have equal authority, and tradition says something, and tradition can't be wrong, which one trumps it? Tradition trumps it, right? Because tradition can't be wrong. So in practice, tradition has more authority than God's Word. And so we sound, we hear that as Protestants and we're like, well, that's dumb. 
But then what do we do? We jerk the wheel into the other side of the ditch and we end up practicing not sola scriptura, but solo scriptura. Only the Bible. And so you hear people say, um, I don't need tradition or no creed, but the Bible that isn't in the Bible. And so then the people interpret God's word for themselves and each individual gets to decide what's true and what's wrong. We reject these errors. Because of what we mentioned earlier, church tradition has been wrong. And so we cannot give equal authority to the commandments and the traditions of men. Mary was not a perpetual virgin. There is no Redeemer except Christ alone. There is no purgatory. There is no treasury of merit that the saints can tap into on your behalf and to give you some extra grace. The Lord's Supper is not a re-crucifixion of Jesus every week. If Christ's work is what saves you, then our work doesn't contribute to that. Purgatory can't exist. If tradition and Scripture come into conflict... We have to go with Scripture. And we have to reject tradition because God's Word is the ultimate authority over over men. Now, on the other hand, we mentioned uh, uh, Protestants fall into the, the ditch of solo scriptura. But we reject that. We believe that the Scriptures are the ultimate authority, but not the only authority. And why do we believe that? Because the Bible tells us. The Bible isn't the only authority. The Bible has given us other authorities. First Timothy 3.15, Paul says that the Scriptures are written so that the church might know how to behave because the church is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Jeremiah says that God's people are not to depart from the ancient paths. And he says that calamity has come upon the church in part because they have stumbled away from the ancient paths and stumbled onto their own paths. Proverbs wisely instructs that we are not to move ancient boundaries that our fathers have set. Protestants have overreacted to Rome and they've embraced radical individualism. And therefore, we have logically rejected the authority structures that God Himself has put into place in the Bible that we say we believe. God has given His church pastors and teachers to equip the saints. And God's people are to trust and obey God's shepherds. We have no problem trusting a doctor to give us a prescription. We have no problem trusting a dentist to fill our cavity or a mechanic to change our oil. But as Protestants, we think that because we have our Bible, we don't need anyone telling us how to use it. That's wrong. Anyone who thinks that way should repent and they should believe God's Word. We believe that Scripture alone has ultimate authority, but we also believe that God has established secondary authorities, which are 
seen in the scriptures. So God's word is God-breathed and authoritative. And finally, we affirm, but because these are God's words that he has seen fit to leave us with, the holy scriptures are sufficient. The Bible is enough for us. Rome taught that and teaches that people need the Pope and the magisterium to give oral tradition to supplement the scriptures. We think that's crazy. But what do we do? We jerk the wheel. We say, no, I need personal experience to affirm what the Scriptures say is true. I need some sort of special revelation from God to find out His will. We reject the sufficiency of Scripture just like Rome did. Rome taught that natural revelation, nature, you could look at nature and be saved. And we think, well, that's crazy. And then what do we do? We go on silent retreats for a week to hear some special word from God in nature. They're both wrong. We reject both errors. God's word is sufficient. God's word is enough to teach us what we are to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. If you have the Holy Spirit illumining your heart and illumining your mind to understand the Scriptures then they are enough to tell you what you need to know about God and His will. They are clear enough. You don't need a Pope, and you don't need some secret call from Jesus to tell you what you need to know. God has spoken in His Word by His Spirit, and that is enough for us. You don't need to go off into the woods for a week, and you can't look at the Grand Canyon to be saved. You need the Holy Scriptures. And the Holy Scriptures must be enough. They are God's Word. They carry God's authority. And they are enough for you and for me. And that's just the tip of Sola Scriptura. So my hope, as we've just started to open this series, is that uh, these truths that you've heard this evening would kindle the fire in your hearts for God's Word. But if it hasn't, and if you're confused, and if you're overwhelmed, and if you have a thousand questions, then come to MC Wednesday and let's work out how all these things fit together. But for now, as we close, I want us to look at Jesus, the Word made flesh, that He might comfort our aching hearts and calm our spinning heads. For we dare not look to the Scriptures to find life apart from Him, for it is they that bear testimony to Him. We have just heard that the Holy Scriptures are God-breathed words. His Spirit carried men along. The Word made flesh was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He was the Word made flesh. We just heard that God's Word has ultimate authority over our lives. But the Word made flesh is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Alpha and the Omega, the way and the truth and the life. We just heard that the Scriptures are sufficient. They are enough to let you know what God, what man is to believe concerning God and what duty He requires of you. But the Word made flesh was God become man to fulfill those requirements for you. 
And only He is sufficient to save. So with all this sola scriptura and post tenebras lux is too much to wrap your mind around. Remember the God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Believe that and rest in His word for it is His desire that you do so. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we thank You for Your Word. To think how You've preserved it for us through the centuries. To think that we are able to sit here now and flip through the pages of Scripture and read them in our own tongue. It's unimaginable to think of Your love for us. We thank You for Your Word. We pray that You would give us a deeper desire to find you there. Help us not to look at other things um, to please us, for other things to stimulate us, but that we would treasure that we have your word, the infinite, almighty God of the universe, speaking to us in the scriptures. Give us an image and a desire for Jesus that we might worship Him and see Him there. For it is in Him we have hope and it is in, in Him we have life. We pray to You in His name and for His glory. Amen.